Hi, and welcome to episode 81 of the Planet LP podcast. I'm Ted Iserogat. When David Bowie died on January 10th, 2016, at the age of 69, I remember remarking to D.W. Dunphy, who's been on the podcast before and was one of the original writers at Popdose, that's how I met him. I said to Dunphy, I said, this is the start of the great die-off. What I meant at the time was that the death of musicians who came onto the proverbial music stage in the 60s and 70s were reaching the end of their lives. That we'd see with greater frequency announcement after announcement of artists whose work endured for decades, starting to exit the stage left of life. With my generation, and that would be Gen X, I thought, well, we'd have a good 20-something more years left until some Gen X musicians started shuffling off their mortal coils. Well, life and death don't always work out neatly like that. I mean, look, you had Kurt Cobain dying, Lisa Lefaya Lopez, Taylor Hawkins, Aaliyah, Coolio, Luke Perry, Chris Cornell, Adam Yoke, and on August 26, 2023, it was announced that Sinead O'Connor had died. Maybe because I'm in my late 50s and in the same age group as Sinead O'Connor, that for some reason when I heard that she died, it was kind of a shock of sadness that I don't usually experience with the death of noted artists. And that includes Neil Peart. And if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you know how much I like Rush. Well, with Sinead O'Connor, her life was marked by tragedy. She suffered from mental illness, and she wanted to kill herself after the suicide of her son. So it shouldn't be a surprise that her life would likely end at a relatively early age. As the outpouring of tributes started to be published, videos made and posted on YouTube or podcast episodes dedicated to Sinead's music started appearing in my podcast feeds or my news feeds, it struck me that while O'Connor hadn't really had a hit in decades, the time she was culturally potent in the music scene was a time when she proved to the world that she would risk her career in taking individual stands against organized power. To talk about the cultural impact of Sinead O'Connor, writer Annie Logue is here on the podcast. Annie and I were writers at Popdose, but she's now a finance writer who authored four books in the For Dummies series. One is on day trading, another is on day trading for Canadians, and then there's one on socially responsible investing and emerging markets. She worked for over a decade as an investment analyst and authors a Substack newsletter called The Whatever Years. Before I get into the conversation with Annie, how about getting social? Facebook, X, Threads, Instagram, and Groupie, just search for Planet LP. And if you want to connect with me via email, you can at ted at planetlp.com. Subscribe and follow Planet LP on all the usual podcasting apps, Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio. We're on all of those or listen at planetlp.com. And with that, let's get the conversation started with Annie Loke. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ted. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. You know, after Sinead O'Connor died, one of the first pieces I read was your Substack post. You wrote, Sinead O'Connor died, and it hit me hard. She joined my life's soundtrack in my and her early 20s, and lyrics from her song, The Emperor's New Clothes, seemed to crop up everywhere in my life. You quote her by saying, all I want to do is just sit here and write it all down and rest for a while. Clearly, that song resonates with you. 
which is what art is supposed to do, right? It, it has this ability to just say, this piece of music, a novel, this piece of art, I've connected with it because it really reflects what I'm going through or how I feel or, wow, this is kind of my life right now. She clearly was somebody who was felt her emotions right at the surface and mm -hmm. was not afraid to let everybody know what they were. And I felt like with the Emperor's New Clothes, she just had so many lines that just reflected so much about the things that happen in the world and the, the ways that people respond to, or at least the way I respond to things. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. enough of an introvert that, and, and a writer, and I do a lot of times, I'm just like, I just want to sit here. I just want to make some notes. I just want everybody to leave me alone. But also there's so much in that song about trying to, to deal with others and trying to manage a career and trying to manage a life. You yeah. know, a lot of the lines about they laugh because they know they're untouchable, not because what I said was wrong, allegedly was written in response to a very difficult relationship with you too, which especially back right. then was trying to position themselves as the arbiters of all things Irish music. Uh, and she very much felt that she had made her career on her own. You know, I will live by my own policies. I will sleep with a clear conscience. I will sleep in peace. Mm -hmm. Like that she was not worried about what other people thought, that she was going to do what she wanted. And I felt like for so many things, like that's really what you need to do to get through the world at a certain point. It, you know, and it's hard because there's always a lot of pressure to do, to fit in, to to play the game and to follow right, the rules. But right. at a certain point, you know what you've done is the right thing. And I think she really had that part down. And I think for all of us, the line about how could I possibly know what I wanted when I was only 21. <laughs> um, with, yeah. In a way, it was kind of funny because I think she was like 23 when she wrote that right, or 24. Right. For most people, like our lives are not what we thought they would be when we were twenty one, right? No, I, I think she was she was capturing something that people on the cusp of this sort of full on adulthood, you know, when you're twenty one, you're still trying to make your way in the world. I mean, even though here in the United States you're technically an adult with all the responsibilities that are supposed to come with it, but there's that those those years of sort of searching and not quite sure. You mentioned something about you too, and, and that she was maybe not so publicly feuding with them, but sort of breaking with you two in terms of her, you know, coming out of from underneath their shadow in a way and saying, you know, you're not the only Irish band in the world. Uh, there, there are a lot of other Irish bands and performers here. That I didn't know that that rift had occurred. I mean, I I didn't read her her biography. I think it was called Remembrances. So in the late 80s, I believe, U2 had sort of started a side project where they were going to try to promote other Irish bands. And mm -hmm. they kind of claimed that they had discovered Sinead O'Connor, and there were some people in the same orbit. But she had worked with Into Anua and World Party before she recorded as a solo artist. Mm -hmm. So her point was that she didn't need the these people to come and reach down and say, you will be the next star. She felt that she had done it on her own and that she actually had a track record, that she hadn't come from nowhere. 
you know, she was sent to work at a Magdalene Laundry or what had once been a Magdalene Laundry, which was one of the many scandals involving the Catholic Church in Ireland. The Magdalene Laundries were businesses that were operated by um, some orders of nuns, and they would. The idea was that they were to reform fallen women through hard work, and in many cases, it was akin to slavery. By the time Sinead O'Connor was sent to one for her behavior, they were much more set up like an alternative school. But one of the sisters there had a brother who was in a band, and that was kind of how, in a way, it was the sister who discovered her. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is rather interesting. But it also shows how intimately involved she was with a lot of these institutions that she later came out and denounced. Yeah, you referenced the Catholic Church, which was certainly in the crosshairs of O'Connor's ire. I think that that Saturday Night Live performance is striking in that she was using the show as a platform for protest in a way that seemed to me like a throwback to 60s, maybe very early 70s. And the problem was, for I guess the people running the show, many of whom were boomers, they may have been in the front of the barricades back in the day, but now they're running mainstream shows and you have this performer who's ripping up a picture of the Pope, where she's trying to call attention to something that I don't think was reported in a mainstream way at the time, and that is child abuse, pedophilia, all of this that the Catholic Church, the scandals of the Catholic Church have sort of come out in waves. And what I think people were looking at was that, oh my God, especially for Catholics, you know, I mean, the Pope is right right next to God. And you just ripped up a picture of the Pope, and you're saying fight the real enemy. Yeah, I and mean, missed the message. Maybe it was a it was a bit muddled. I don't know. I mean, the I Pope think it because, was a little yeah. muddled in the sense that Ireland was feeling a lot of religious reform before the United States was. Um, the Republic of Ireland had been very tightly under the control of the bishops, and certain things were illegal up until the 1990s. Divorce mm-hmm. had been illegal. And one of the things that Sinead O'Connor had often said was a problem in her childhood was that her parents were not getting along mm-hmm. and they could not get divorced. And what had to happen was her father had to emigrate to the United States so that essentially her mother could argue that she had been completely abandoned. And so Sinead oh, okay. and her siblings lost their father, you know, because he was thousands of miles away. It does seem that her mother had some mental health problems as well, that the kids were put in this very difficult and somewhat impoverished situation because divorce was outlawed. There's so much of the biography of Sinead O'Connor that was wrapped up in that that moment on that SNL stage and why she chose the Bob Marley song to sing that she did, what all this meant to her as what she was trying to express. And one thing that I found out only later after she had died was the picture that she had ripped up on television was the one that was in her mother's house. And after her mother passed away, she had kept that picture of the Pope. So 
This was somehow a very personal protest in terms of the family dynamic, the abuse she suffered at the hands of her own mother. As she said that she was not only physically abused by her mother, a lot of kicking and so forth, but also sexually abused by her mom, she said. She has claimed that. Yes, she has. Yeah. And another thing I think about the timing of that protest was that there were people who were aware of the sexual abuse in the United States and in mm-hmm. Ireland, but it wasn't part of mainstream conversation. I was raised Roman Catholic, and there was a mm-hmm. priest in my parish as a kid who was clearly behaving inappropriately, taking junior high-aged altar boys to R-rated movies on weekends, things like that. Wow. And um, at one point, my sister and I got in trouble because we were telling our mother, like, this is wrong. And it was like, well, you're just thinking mean things about a priest and listening to gossip. And, you know, and I think this is kind of that generational thing where a lot of people who were sort of younger knew this stuff was going on and couldn't necessarily articulate it. And it hadn't necessarily filtered filtered up into the public consciousness. And Sinead O'Connor was making that point before this became part of the record. When the Boston Globe reporters did their work on pedophilia in the Boston Archdiocese, that didn't come until later in the 90s and early into the 2000s. So she was ahead of her time. Yeah. When you look at the history of Saturday Night Live in the 70s, it was pretty much subversive. The kinds of bands that played on in the 70s were mm-hmm. totally cutting edge, came out of nowhere. They weren't featuring whoever's on the top of the pop charts. They were actually setting the stage for that. You know, the writers included people like Buck Henry. These were not people who just sort of were like, oh, let's crack a little joke about what's in the news this week. It was like, mm-hmm. let's do things that are truly on the edge. Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. But then when that original group broke up, Saturday Night Live had kind of their years in the wilderness. You know, some of the people who were in the cast were outstanding, but could never gel. People like Julie Louis-Dreyfus, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then by the late 80s and into the 90s, they started to become a show again. They got their groove back and they got their groove back partly by being palatable to a mainstream audience. Mm -hmm. And like Joe Pesky was the star the week after Sinead O'Connor and was like, you know, whatever. He was going to smack her or something. It's like- Smack her. And then he says, I want to grab her by her eyebrows. Because of course, you know, she had her shaved head. Yeah. But but he also like taped up the the photo. I don't even know if that was really the photo, but- but you know, it was a real performative thing. But, <laughs> but he's there to promote his movie. It's not. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. This is this isn't like Buck Henry is the guest mm-hmm. host. It's suddenly like this is a mainstream show, and we are not going to be controversial. Any and- kind of the controversy would probably be more about punching down than punching up. You know? Yeah, I mean, they they would always throw darts at the powerful at times, but it seemed like in a safe way. You know, mm-hmm. we're all in on the joke. <laughs> that, yeah, that it feels it feels comfortable. But when something like what what Sinead O'Connor did that makes people very uncomfortable, and then something that you had said to me that with Joe Pesci's performance afterward, that was it. The SNL stopped being 
any kind of subversive show. Yeah, they got their groove back. It looked like that it was going to be a successful program that advertisers would buy into as long as you didn't have Irish protest singers ripping up pictures of the Pope. <laughs> and one of the things that I find fascinating about it is artists continued to support Sinead O'Connor. Mm -hmm. She always had the respect of her fellow artists. Was it what, a couple of weeks later, she did the show, the Bob oh, Dylan, the Dylan birthday yeah, show the, right. and was booed off stage. Chris Christopherson stood next to her. Chris Christopherson wrote a song about what happened. When you look at her cat, her later catalog, she recorded mm -hmm. with all kinds of artists. Right. And right. all kinds of artists were okay that she covered their songs because they respected her and they also respected the power of her voice. So I think a lot of artists, a lot of recording artists struggle with how you tell the truth, how you express emotion. And at the same time, how you sell records, because it is a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, at an extreme, you have Taylor Swift, who's got probably thousands of employees between the drivers, the roadies, the dancers, her PR team. She's a business. Yeah, definitely. Right? A corporation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So at one end, you have artists who probably feel some sense of responsibility to their employees. Like if I screw this up, I'm going to cause thousands of people to lose their livelihoods. Yes. At the other yeah. hand, you have artists who don't care whether or not their records sell, but that number's pretty small, right? Because if you have the guts to go up on stage and sing, you want people to like you, you know, you Definitely. want some yeah. positive feedback because that's a hard thing to do. I agree. I think that there was there was never, at least to my knowledge, any artists that made public statements about that SNL performance or even after that, where maybe she converted to Islam or she changed her name a couple of times, anything like that. It was just like, no, that's Sinead being Sinead. You be pure to yourself. And mm -hmm. I, I actually stopped listening to her music after the year 2000, which was that album, Faith and Courage, really liked the record. But you stayed with her and right to her final record, which I came out in 2016, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. <laughs> <laughs> which, yes, she was in charge of her career. But so if you could sort of paint with a broad brush in a way, how would you assess her catalog, which starts in 1987, ends in 2016? I think it's pretty diverse. It's been know. all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she has had a long spiritual journey, dabbling in a lot of different faiths. For a while, had a rather radical take on Catholicism. She claimed mm -hmm. to have been an ordained Catholic priest. She flirted for a while with Rasta, and she ended up taking up Islam. Mm -hmm. She wrote songs about her spiritual journey. She also recorded a lot of traditional Irish music, and she recorded with a lot of other performers, especially two of the biggest Irish bands other than U2, which would be um, Shane McGowan and his band, Shane McGowan and the Popes. Not everybody in Ireland was quite so enamored of the Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> and um, with the Chieftains, who have been 
the deans of Irish music for decades and, you know, again, supported her, supported her voice. So I think her output's been all over the place. I think it's been a little bit uneven. You know, the Mm -hmm. first two albums were so strong rock and roll. But one of the things is that she was married to her drummer at the time, and then that marriage ended in divorce. When that partnership, both professional and personal partnership, ended, I think she may have struggled a little more to find the band that worked for her. And I also think she seemed much less interested in touring. Hmm. So recording albums of standards or recording albums of folk music made it easier for her to do ad hoc appearances as part of different festivals or different shows. Um, But it also really let her express what she was going through and show the range of her voice. Which was pretty incredible. There was a lot, a lot of, uh, well, it was a, it was a big range. I mean, she had a very powerful voice and, and she wasn't even, I mean, she did say in a couple of interviews that her, her parents were, were singers. But I don't know if she was ever trained or if she even knew she could sing. Maybe she sang in the shower like a lot of people do. But Yeah, I don't think so. I think probably other than singing at mass as a mm-hmm. kid. I mean, music is a big part of traditional Irish culture. And so if you're hanging out, even now, if you're hanging out in bars in Ireland, there's often people playing a musical session Um, So she was probably heavily exposed to it, but I don't think she had much formal training, no. Yeah, which is amazing because she could do so much with her voice. I mean, just that natural talent was pretty impressive. You know, we were talking earlier about the way in which musical artists, like, for example, the Taylor Swift Corporation, is a business and the music business is a business. One of the things about Sinead O'Connor is that she risked a lot to express her opinions like the SNL stage, which as people have noted, she never recovered from in the United States, but she did all right in Europe and and in the UK in terms of her music. It's people still came out to see her live when she was performing. They still bought the records before she passed away. She was very concerned about her finances And so talk a little bit about that. I mean, you're a financial writer, so this is kind of within your wheelhouse. Talk about what she had expressed to her children. Yeah. I mean, earlier on, she had said, like after the Saturday Night Live thing, that, well, her money was fine. It was the record company executives who were screwed. She wasn't so worried (laughs) about her own career. And I don't think she was, but I don't think she was naive either. I don't know that four divorces is necessarily the best thing to do um, in terms of protecting your personal finances. But she told her children to call her accountant before they called an ambulance because she said that artists become more valuable after they die Mm -hmm. and that the record companies could take advantage of that and screw them out of the money that they were owed. So she really wanted to make sure that her children got their royalty revenue, got the benefit of the increased attention that came to her music. And there has been an enormous amount of increased attention. And it seems like there's a lot of people who are discovering her for the first time. And that should lead to increased revenue for her children, assuming that her accountant was a good one. Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
she wanted to make sure that they were protected. And I mean, there's a lot of things that happen. Like as soon as the bank finds out that a customer died, they're going to shut down activity in an account until they are Mm -hmm. certain that the other people making transactions have the right to do that. Some of her children were, were fairly young, and I'm sure she wanted to make sure that they were completely protected. Well, I hope she had a good trust and will, unlike Prince, so. who had who had nothing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Prince had nothing. Aretha Franklin had a will that was stuck in a couch. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of artists that have made serious financial mistakes because they're not financial people, right? They're artists. And there's a lot of people around them who are ready to take advantage of them. And maybe because of the kind of childhood she had, Sinead O'Connor was not trusting of the record companies at all. And she seems to have had clashes from them very early on. She said that the reason she shaved her head is that the company executives had sort of developed a look for her Mm-hmm. And she said that the look was based on what their mistresses looked like. And she wanted no part of that. Which, yeah. You know, the, I was listening to Rolling Stone's music podcast and they it was, it came out about a few days after Sinead O'Connor, the announcement that she had died. And the guest was Shirley Manson from the band Garbage, who had never met Sinead O'Connor, was a big admirer of hers. And she said something that, I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, but she said that O'Connor died in relative poverty. She was saying she was bankrupt in a way and people sort of abandoned her. But I'm guessing that that's not necessarily the case. Maybe she had set up her trust and will so her children would benefit from it. But I don't know how she was personally living. Was she living with other people? Was that picture that Shirley Manson painted, was that accurate from what you know about the last days or last years of Sinead O'Connor? There's a lot of very strange things about the last several years. One of the things that I found so weird was in 2016, she was living in the Chicago suburb of Wilmette, mm-hmm. which is, if you don't know Chicago, that's like the North Shore, that's John Hughes country. Very oh, okay. Yeah. Wealthy, preppy, conformist. Every one of those films that was filmed in Chicago from John Hughes from Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club. That's that's that place. Yeah. And it was so strange because she had she was apparently staying with a drummer who had worked with Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. And she disappeared. She apparently got on her bike and left, and he didn't know where she was and called the police. And so it was kind of strange because I don't think people in Chicago realized she was there. You know, there's so many neighborhoods that are artsier. There's neighborhoods that have huge Irish populations. And well, Met is none of those things. So it was hmm. like a little strange. Like, what is she doing? And right. Then later, she was living in a motel in New Jersey. She had a house in the Wicklow Mountains outside Dublin. Again, she had four divorces, which Mm, would cut into your finances, certainly. A little bit. (laughs) Unless she had really good prenups. She had spent time in and out of hospitals, which could get expensive. Ireland has national health care, but it's not always doesn't always cover everything, especially when you're talking about high quality mental health care. 
because there's a shortage of that everywhere. I don't know what kind of income she had. She probably did not have a huge estate. Probably a lot of the money comes from ongoing revenue from royalties, which would also be why she wanted to make sure her children got the royalties when interest in her recordings picked up again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somebody like, again, at another extreme, Mick Jagger, he's had so much money for so many years, he probably has very good trusts set up. He has a lot of hard assets. Sinead O'Connor was in a different stratum of art. And so I don't know that she was in poverty, but she wasn't living a big rock and roll lifestyle. Right. And I think that that's kind of the myth sometimes of successful artists that once they've made it, that they're set for life. But the reality is, whether it's through mismanagement, like they don't understand the financial picture of what they have now and or don't care. <laughs> it's just like, hey, as long as the money keeps coming in, I'm fine. And then you've got unscrupulous people who will take advantage of that, whether it's record company executives or even like accountants that are hired to manage the affairs of these artists. I mean, almost every behind the music episode has some kind of like, yeah, the money, I thought the money would last forever. And then somebody gets ripped off, whether it's a crappy record contract or uh, I think with Billy Joel of his brother-in-law, who was also his, his accountant, was ripping him off. They don't pay attention to you know the balance sheet because, well, let's face it, that's not their strong suit. Their strong suit no. is not numbers. It's how to make music, how to make art. Right. So it's it's understandable that later in life, when the hits aren't coming, and you're maybe living off the royalties of your previous work, which maybe you were tied in with a record contract that didn't pay a hell of a lot, but paid something at least that maybe yeah. she was kind of living a frugal life and living with others, maybe out of choice, maybe out of necessity. And and maybe she says, well, that nest egg that I have for my children, I'm not going to, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure that they get that at least I can give them something when I'm gone materially. How she lived her life in the last few years maybe was not necessarily a reflection of her actual financial picture. And it doesn't take a lot to suddenly have a big increase in royalty streams. Um, mm-hmm. I saw an estimate that with Fast Car going to number one in with the Luke Combs version, yeah. that Tracy Chapman could be expected to get a half a million dollars this year just Not from bad. that. Yeah. And she lives in San Francisco, so that'll pay what? Uh, a year's <laughs> worth of rent? <laughs> that'll buy her a parking space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something like that. But that that's an interesting number to, to hear because I didn't think in this day and age of streaming- that really the artists really make that much money. I mean, it's 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 like it feels like pennies on the dollar, probably because it is. It may be less than pennies on the dollar, but the physical copies of records, CDs, vinyl, mm-hmm. even cassette that they're selling. And again, I wonder like why? Why are they selling cassettes? But I guess it's it's got that throwback uh, feel to it. Very like oh, my parents had cassettes, so I'm gonna have cassettes. Mm-hmm. The split that you get off of the physical product is a lot higher versus those streams. I don't know if you've ever and looked into that. Country music is a genre. There seems to be more interest in physical product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Certain yeah. genres seem to have more interest in physical product than in streaming. That's true. That's it's a good point. So maybe some of that some of that money is coming from actual CD and vinyl sales and cassette. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to dovetail now into our five favorites from Sinead O'Connor. We've kind of traded lists sort of last minute, but I think that this is sort of reflective of what I said early on for my list, which is I kind of stopped listening to her music you know, after the year 2000, but you continued. So we can just go back and forth, you know, you, me, you, me, it's not a top five. It's just five favorites. No, in no particular order, I I suppose, but we'll start with you. I would say number one is the emperor's new clothes, mm-hmm. which again, it just, there's so many great lines in that song. And it seems like it reflected where I was when the song came out. And to a certain extent, it reflects where I am still now. And I think that it is really incisive and sharp writing, just very clear. These are the lines. This is what's happening. And mm-hmm. it's really, it, it has a strong, strong music, strong lyrics fabulous lines. It is my favorite Sinead O'Connor song. Came off her 1990 album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. So my first one I'm going to spotlight is from her her debut album in 1987, Lion the Cobra. It's Mandinka. So how can you not like this rockin' debut from 1987? I thought at the time her voice was really unique and all the different changes that she kind of affects throughout the song. And she has this kind of range, like we talked about earlier, but it's really present on this single, which the first time I ever heard this song, I was just like, I went out and I bought the album after seeing, I think I saw it on MTV first. I don't think I heard it on the radio. I might've heard it first saw the video and then I heard it on the radio. There was a modern rock station called Live 105. It's back now. It went on ice for a while, but I think that's where I first heard it. But it's just a great pop rock song. It's got a catchy chorus, that great crunchy guitar riff, a wonderfully forward-moving driving beat. Yeah, Mandinka. That's one of my five favorites. There we go. Back to you, Annie. Okay. um, I'm going to say that number two is Psalm 33 from Theology, which was an album she recorded in her Rastafarian phase. Hmm. But Psalm 33 is in the Hebrew Bible book of Psalms about playing music for the glory of God. And she is playing music for the glory of God on that album. And I just find that to be a lovely song that reflects a lot of her interests and the culture she was raised in and the culture that she was trying to be part of at that time. That's what I'm going to check out. I think what I will do is I'll just put this on a playlist and then put it on Spotify so we can have that out there in the world without (laughs) playing it on the podcast and running afoul of any copyright restrictions. I'm going to go with I Am Stretched On Your Grave. Uh, That's from that 1990 album that had uh, The Emperor's New Clothes and Nothing Compares to You. The fact that it combines this really great hip-hop beat with an Irish poem from like the 17th century. I just thought, wow, this is a really cool fusion of styles and cultures that makes for some great music. It's one of my favorites off that record. That is a gorgeous song too. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she, I didn't know until later that she wasn't, that it was an actual poem. I thought she wrote the lyrics. I thought, wow, this is really deep. But yeah, when I, when I found out it was, (laughs) it was a 17th century Irish poem, I'm like, oh, Okay. I thought she was writing it about maybe her mother or 
lost lover, you know, a lover who died or something like that. But um, I guess you can take it in any way you want. But just the the way that she put that song together, I thought was just pretty, pretty great. We'll get back to you now. The next song I'll go with is Haunted, which she did as a duet with Shane McGowan. He recorded an album, kind of a solo album, under the name Shane McGowan and the Popes um, Mm -hmm. after the Pogues kicked him out. In some ways, it's a song of codependence, Hmm. but it's the two of them together, this song about trying to be with someone you love who is damaged. And the big line is, you know, I am haunted by the ghost of your precious love. Mm. I think it's beautiful. I think it's sad, but I think it's absolutely beautiful the way their very, very different voices come together and and make this really strong song. I'm looking forward to hearing that one too. You're introducing me to deeper cuts that minor, I would say minor a little bit more. And I wouldn't say shallow, but they're a little bit more mainstream, I suppose. That's next not one is- easy to do to introduce yeah. you to new music. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with Keith Creighton coming on and always with his boatload of like brand new CDs. And so I'm always immersed in what he suggests each month. And it's always great when I hear somebody passionate about a song or an album and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go check that out. So speaking of a kind of a, a weird pivot, this next one, I really... I started listening to it shortly after she passed away, which was the follow-up album to I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. And it's the uh, the name of the album is Am I Not Your Girl, which was a, a bunch of covers, like jazzy covers of standards. And the one that really struck me, and I thought, this is really, I mean, this is really kind of interesting because of the way she made this song her own. It's success has made a failure of our home. It's a cover of a 1962 song written by Johnny Mullins and was made famous by Loretta Lynn under the title Success. So I'm listening to this on my headphones. I'm like, man, talk about fusion. I thought I'm stretched on your grave as a fusion of styles. And this is really a fusion. I like that she, she pivoted in a way from her smash album to record this jazzy record of covers Maybe she needed to take a break from songwriting, but I think what elevates the song from, that's an interesting cover, to, wow, you really made it your own, is that she starts belting out, am I not your girl, at the end of the song, is a kind of a wail, which isn't on the the one that Loretta Lynn did. So I'm like, wow, now this is her song. It's not not necessarily a cover. And I, I really was taken by how she made this her own in a very, very unique way. She was able to do that. And some Mm -hmm. of that was just because of her amazing voice. So number four on my list is She Moved Through the Fair, which she recorded with the Chieftains. Mm -hmm. And it's a traditional Irish folk song about watching a woman at a county fair, following her as she moves through it. And she makes it this very plaintive wail that you're seeing like a ghost, like something that could be a love song or could be a song about yearning. And she makes it something that's totally mysterious and totally painful in a beautiful way. And, you know, the Chieftains backed by, if you like traditional Irish music, they were so tight, they were so strong musically and willing to work with all kinds of singers. So I think that it was a really good pairing 
with these great musicians who knew Irish traditional music, but who were not afraid to work with somebody as controversial as she was because her mm-hmm. voice and her interpretation of songs is so strong. Yeah. And that kind of dovetails into my pick, which is with the Chieftains and it's the Foggy Dew. I thought if there was ever any doubt that Sinead O'Connor was Irish, it's <laughs> awful. How effective and versatile her voice was. It's almost like she could kind of insert her voice into this very if she had to do like those those jazzy numbers from you know the the nineteen ninety two record, Am I Not Your Girl, she could kind of go into this very intimate, almost whispery, and then into a full throated wail of a, you know, just belting it out and in between a, a, just a just an amazing range, but yeah, I really like that one with the with the chieftain. And then I think we're at number five at this point, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So what has come in at the your final entry, as it were? My final entry is also from "I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got," mm-hmm. and it is the last day of our acquaintance, which is a song about divorce that is so literal, yeah. and yet so painful, so deeply emotional. It's hard to believe that a line like, we will meet again in somebody's office Mm -hmm. could be so painful. But that is exactly what she's talking about, that the divorce has gone through, we're no longer acquainted, it's all up to the lawyers. And I think that we've talked a little bit about her financial issues and and right. her complicated life and that song about her first the breakup of her first marriage is just so so real and raw yeah the whole i'll talk but you won't listen to me you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that that line it's just yeah that was a very very powerful song and and there's another example of the range of her vocal like she starts out with a kind of it's almost weak, you know, like I'm I'm damaged or it's uh, not weak. I and mean, that's a, probably a bad term, but just very wounded and whispered. And then it starts to build up. There's a sense of of deep sorrow about the ending of, of this union, even though it's probably it's bound to happen as far as the relationship went. My fifth song is No Man's Woman. This was a follow-up album to I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. I think that O'Connor's career path would have been far more conventional because this record comes out like a decade after basically her biggest album. And I think it's noteworthy because the songs on this record are, for the most part, really excellent pop songs and sometimes remind me of Sarah McLachlan from like Surfacing. I can hear like a, a little bit of, of of that come through. You were talking about how she had become Rastafarian at one point. And if you see the video for this song, there are Rastafarian people, mostly men, in this as kind of saviors and helping her in a way. So I I thought it was a not only just a really strong song, but I she does something, and I've told my wife this about what Olivia Newton-John could do especially on that song, Put a Little More Love, that she changes the chorus ever so slightly each time. And on No Man's Woman, Sinead O'Connor does something similar. Not exactly. The chorus stays somewhat the same three quarters of the way through. And then there's a little change up and she changes it slightly, which to me, when artists do that, it kind of elevates the song. It makes it more interesting. Like, oh, you've, you're not just relying on the same chorus exactly how it was recorded the first time and you just repeat it 
uh, on the production, but rather you say, well, let's try to take this up a notch or take it in a slightly different direction, still making it melodic, but it adds a kind of power to it. And I, I, that's what I really appreciated from, from just a listener's standpoint. There's a lot of songs that should have been bigger hits mm-hmm. if people had really respected her freedom of expression and her rights as an artist as much as they could have. She deserved at least as much courtesy for her opinions as Jason Aldean is getting right now. And that's a guy who certainly figured out, hmm, maybe I could ride the protest wave in a in a slightly, well, maybe not slightly, but a very different direction as far as the political spectrum is concerned and see if I can generate enough controversy where people are going to buy my records because controversy often sells. And I think he's doing exactly what a lot of rock hip hop artists have done for decades, which is they really put something that is going to be polarizing out there. And because it's polarizing, it seems dangerous. And if it's dangerous, some people want in on it and they want to buy into it. So they, they right. will literally buy it. Good marketing ploy in a way for, for yeah. him. I think the difference is Sinead O'Connor didn't seem dangerous. She was dangerous. Mm-hmm. She was an angry woman who was telling the truth. That's the difference, why her danger damaged her career instead of enhanced it. Right. So in a way, Aldine's move seems calculated mm-hmm. to be more like um, you know, like a troll will be online just to get attention. Absolutely. <laughs> and instead of really trying to send a message or really say, I'm I'm going to say something that's controversial, that's dangerous, but it needs to be said. It may not be a popular opinion, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I think as we kind of close out this episode, I wanted to spotlight just one more song, and and it's the Nirvana cover that she put out in 1994, All Apologies. I thought it was a pretty tasteful tribute to Kurt Cobain because the song was released or the album came out not long after his suicide in April 94, so the, the album that that comes from. Uh, came out in September. Her cover, I think, it's pretty faithful. She doesn't really belt it out, but she keeps it in that kind of quieter, whispery way. And I think it, in a way, even though she remains pretty true to the the way the song uh, was originally done in terms of the vocal phrasing and everything, that the way she decided to sing it, which was far more in her quieter voice, made it more powerful in a way. That was my, I guess if you want to call it a honorable mention or a bonus track that I wanted to tack on there. If you have another one you want to throw on there, just as, as a, it's just to kind of like, well, we got one more to go. Let's, let's do it. If you have another one you want to spotlight, feel free. Her cover of Mother with Roger Waters, mm-hmm. really powerful take and making a song that had been around for ages and making it autobiographical. That's a really good pick. So we, we ended on covers and I think that that mm-hmm. now- her music is going to be covered more. It already is by by artists, more, mostly as tributes. But I fully expect that, as you said earlier in the episode, that as younger people start to be introduced to her music and because of her death, it puts a spotlight on her, they're going to check it out. And you may get more and more musicians being inspired to take up maybe not Nothing Compares to You, but other songs from her catalog that maybe some of them we spotlighted here on this episode. So I, I just want to thank you, Annie, for for taking time to 
talk with me about Sinead O'Connor, certainly a, an artist that means a lot to you. One that was definitely part of my soundtrack in my 20s, but as I said, kind of dropped off when I was in my 30s. Ah, but maybe I'll rediscover or go back and, and start listening to those albums that I just ignored post-2000. Thanks for being on and, and saying, yeah, you got to go back and listen to these, Ted. Maybe not explicitly stated, but it's more like implicitly. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And that'll do it for another episode of the Planet LP podcast. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. I'll talk to you soon.